All right, well, turn your Bibles to Acts 13, 42 to 52, the last 10 verses. Next week is Easter Sunday, which is exciting, and then we move. So that's going to be exciting. People will be able to breathe just a little bit more and spread out, uh, and that we're, we're super excited to move. We know it's going to take a lot of work, and so please ask our leaders, uh, if there's a way that you can help, and of course, a big way you can help is pray that as we become more and more visible in this city, that God would raise up disciple makers to preach the gospel and make disciples, and that there would be total ownership in the church, as that's our prayer, it's always been our prayer, that there would be total ownership, uh, because that's how God has made it, that we'd all be disciple makers. And we just got back from D.C. We've spent two, de- two days there with, uh, we did 18 hours of discipleship uh, with 11 guys. And I just think even the, the number is pretty cool that just it's 11 of us and Jesus is, was with us and uh, even guiding us as he teaches us uh, how to make disciples again and how to uh, and just even a visual that we got in the back when I, or in the front here when we were praying with the, the elders. And one of the things we said was that we, uh, like a basketball game or whatever sporting game, that there's a holy huddle that happens. There's a, a place where, where there is a place where we, we do training and uh, there's strategy and there's uh, talk about how to uh, play the game, so to speak. But eventually we got to get out of the huddle and get into the game. And I hope that you see the fruit on our, uh, in, our, in the lives of the leaders, that as they come back from D.C. after being there for two weeks, or two days, two weeks, two days, uh, we literally were down the street from the White House. Uh, we just could pull our, chair, our sl- uh, chair back and literally look out the window, and it was right there. And so we were right in the center of town, and it was just really fun to be together as we pray through even uh, our D.C. trip, which Jessica gave me the new numbers. I guess it was 179 people, which is incredible is almost 180 people going over to DC together that is the largest group by far it's 40 more than Detroit which just means that even through this crazy pandemic that God's still growing his church and uh, people are still getting that vision to go and to hear that those 2,000 year old words or word go uh, is still relevant to us today, even no matter what season we're in. And so we're just excited to see fruit happen there, but also um, just excited to see the, the leaders step up to the plate and say, hey, we're going to lead this church in this next season, um, and it's going to be glorious. And so uh, we're going to look at Acts 13, and like always, there's going to be lots of scripture, and I can't promise that I will be slow and give you every single scripture, but you're going to have to go back, and uh, at one point, uh, we're going to have uh, some of our administration to put the notes in, embed them into the uh, website so that you can have, the, at least, if anything, the scriptures to go back to as you guys um, do that in discipleship, and even your own quiet time. I think it'd be good to go over those again and look at them for yourself. So, you know, every, uh, as I was thinking about the gospel this week, every gospel message demands a response. You cannot be neutral. There is no neutrality with the gospel. 
You can't hang on the fence. You can't dangle your two legs on either side. You got to pick one side. There's no indifference. And throughout history, God gave us different messengers that would preach this gospel, uh, the good news of the fact that even though we are sinful and separated from him, even though that uh, we are headed towards hell for all of eternity, that God stopped that and came down himself through Jesus Christ to be a sacrifice for us. And one of the things that... (laughs) that you see throughout scripture that we'll talk about today that is often really sad to watch is that whether it's the prophets or John the Baptist or Jesus himself or even the apostles or throughout even the last 2,000 years of church history, this message both provokes a sense of offense and anger, sometimes indifference, but also people grabbing on to the cross, grabbing onto that message as their only hope for salvation. And so it started actually with the prophets and the priests. In Matthew 23, 34 to 36, it says, Therefore, behold, I am sending you as prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge, will scourge you into, into the synagogues and persecute you from, from city to city, and upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berkiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then in 1 Samuel twenty-two eighteen, it says, the king said to Doeg, you turn around and attack the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priests and he killed the day, that day 85 men who wore the linen apod. In other words, these priests and these prophets were sent by God to bring reconciliation, but yet they were hated. That is a norm as we see throughout scripture, and it will be a norm as you get used to preaching the gospel, whether it's in DC or even on campus, that it's just the way it goes. It's part of it. And even John the Baptist, he also had a ministry that was also rejected, but also listened to because he confronted sin How many of you know that when we confront people's sin, it doesn't always go well? There is an offense, and we're not to take the offense out of the gospel. We are never to do that. In fact, it's to remain, both for the purpose of convicting sin so that one would come to the cross, and then, unfortunately, yes, there are some that with that offense, they are driven away from, but they are responsible. In Matthew 3, 1 to 12, it's a little longer of a passage, but it's good because it shows you the different responses and what John the Baptist came doing just to be faithful with this message. It says, now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah, the prophet, when he said, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make ready for the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now God himself had a garment of camel's hill, Uh, camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Imagine that as a job. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all of Judea and all the district around Jordan and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. And as as they confessed their sins, but when 
he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism. He said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from this, the wrath to come, therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God was able to raise up the children of Abraham. What he was ultimately, what they were trying to say is, hey, my parents were Christian. And so therefore I am. And that's often what people say, right? Even on the streets as we're talking to people and we're confronting them with the reality of their sin and their need for salvation. They're just saying, hey, I grew up in the church. And John the Baptist is saying that's not gonna work. He's saying that he will raise up true sons and daughters of Abraham. He's gonna raise up people who truly repent because they were just hiding behind their lineage rather than having true saving faith. The ax is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I. He's talking about Jesus. And I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now that doesn't mean some charismatic fire. That means the fire of judgment. Jesus is coming to Yes, baptized people in the Holy Spirit mean that when people give their lives to him and they trust him, he puts the Holy Spirit in them. And also, if people reject him, they will meet the fires of hell. Jesus is serious about that. And also John is saying, hey, look, he is actually the one to come. I'm just preparing the way. We're all John the Baptist in one sense. We're just a messenger, When we go to Washington, D.C., or whether it's campus or workplace or whatever, however we do discipleship, which is making disciples, preaching the gospel, we're just a messenger. And I think that helps because when we're rejected, we understand that they're not rejecting us, they're rejecting the message. And it's important because that will give us the continued confidence saying, God, let me just be faithful with preaching the message. And then it says his winnowing fork is in his hands, just speaking of Jesus, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will, will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up chaff with unquenchable fire. And then there was Jesus himself as he came to earth. He was also a messenger from God, Matthew 10, 34 to 36. It says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. Now so much of what people view Christianity is just, oh, can't we just have peace? We just need a little bit more peace. The Miss Universe pageant, you know, those Miss Universe, they always say, what do you want? The winner, hey, what, what, do you, what do you have to say to America? Peace, we just want peace. And so many of us just even look at people that maybe not even, that don't even know the Lord, even in the world say, Well, Jesus came to bring peace. I mean, he came to unify the whole world. He came to unify the nations and we just all need to be together and and just be happy and peaceful. But Jesus says this, he says, I did not actually come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. This is the most intimate relationships you can find on the planet. And he came to divide even that and a daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That's not too hard. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. (laughs) Some are laughing because it's true. (laughs) 
the married men <laughs> or women. <laughs> no. But Jesus did come to bring a sword. And not that we should become giddy about that or even happy about that, but just know that that is the reality and that's true. He did come to bring peace, and that's amongst the church. That Jesus said that my family are those who do the will of God. They're my brother, my sister, my mother, my father. And Peter then, of course, you see in the book of Acts, he preached the gospel and caused division. There's so much of that as you see in the book of Acts. The gospel doesn't necessarily unify, it divides. And then the Jews also, you see in this chapter, even though they were the chosen ones, this chapter shows the mark that they began to reject the gospel once and for all in that scene, and then they moved on to the Gentiles at this point. And it's important that, this, that you see that, but then also hold the Jews in our hearts. I love the Jewish people. I can't wait to go to Israel, not just to view the lands of the Bible, although we'll have all of heaven to see the way, the perfect Jerusalem, the perfect state of Israel. But for now, going to Jerusalem with this, with this set, the eyes on God, would you save the Jewish people? I'm so thankful that I'm a Gentile. It humbles me to read the Bible, to know that this message was always for me but it began with the Jews. They are the chosen ones. And I love that, that I get to be a part of that. I get to be, it's Romans 9 through 11, I get to be grafted into that tree. And that's humbling, knowing that I didn't put myself in there, but that he did. And that is a glorious truth. And so let's look at Acts 13, 13 to, or I'm sorry, uh, 42 to 44. All right. So after Habakkuk 1.5, which we read last week, it says, And Paul and Barnabas were going out, and the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking to him or to them, and were urging them to continue in the grace of God. So a couple of things are happening here that the gospel demands a response, and there's two responses, one of acceptance, positive response, and two, a negative one. But let's look at the positive one right now. Let's look at those who are hungry. So number one, people come hungry. How many of you know, even after a service or after a Sunday service, people leave and say, man, that was good, that was truth, I'm hungry, or you talk to someone on campus, or you talk to someone in your workplace, your family, and you preach the gospel to them, and there's a positive response. They haven't fully given their lives to the Lord, but there's a sense of hunger there. God's beginning to work on their hearts. So that's what was beginning to happen after the gospel message. If you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go back or at least read the first part of Acts 13 to see uh, Paul's transcript of his message. It was a clear gospel message using the Old Testament to preach to the Jews because that's what they understood. As you see later on in Acts 17, that was a different approach. We're going to actually, God's timing, it's pretty cool. Just we're going to be doing Acts 17 in Washington, D.C. And I believe, again, just the timing of the Lord for that and that it is a type of Athens even today. 
And so Paul came right into the synagogue and preached their language, which was the Old Testament, and they needed to see that the Old Testament pointed to the Savior, Jesus. So Acts 17, it says this, 10 and 11, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness. That's hunger examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So they tested Paul and said, okay, he's on. These are right. This is exactly what the Old Testament scriptures say. All right, where is this leading to? And it leads to Christ. And then later on in verse 32 in the same chapter, it says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. There's always two responses to the gospel message. You might find a third one, someone kind of teetering for a little bit, but you can't stay there long. And you know that. Some who are hungry and they stay on that fence, a lot of times if they don't make a quick decision, they leave the faith. And it, of course, is dangerous because in Hebrews 10 says that they've tasted even some level of Christianity and they abandoned. There is no hope for them now because there's literally no other gospel to save them. And so John Piper says this, I love this quote, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. For it is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. He goes on to say, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestations of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world, your soul is stuffed with small things and there's no room for the great. God did not create you for this. There is an appetite for God and it can be awakened. We need to steward the hunger. If you are listening to this message and there's a level of response saying, oh, I wanna know more of God's word because by the way, in this passage, there's even two verses that I just read. It was hungering after the word, not the liking of a man. You see, they were hungry to hear God's word. They were saying, I want to hear more of God's word, not necessarily Paul. I think it's dangerous when we go into a church and say, do I like the pastor or not? You should come in and say, is he preaching the word or not? That is the ultimate scale or framework or rubric of how you evaluate church. Because this, my friends, is a pulpit and it carries the word of God, and this speaks the word of God, and that's all that matters. Because that is is what changes lives. And we must steward the hunger and not miss what God is saying. Right? Amen. Okay. We're all on the same page, I think. (laughs) You can respond. But they are hungry and curious, but they did not come to faith right away. And here's what the Bible says to the people like that. In fact, you are to preach this message when people are on the fence. 
This is what he says in 2 Corinthians 6, 2. He says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. In other words, yes, there's a place where it says, hey, take what I've said, go back to the Lord, see if it's true. But we have got to get better in our gospel presentation saying, "Uh uh-uh, now is the day of salvation. Do not go home because you may not have another night. And it's okay because you're not manipulating people. You're pleading with people to come to Christ knowing that this might be their last hour. And it is salvation for their souls and they don't get another chance after they die. And once we know that, it puts something in us to say, no, please don't go home without believing this message. Now, of course, that might sound manipulative to them. They might just want to please you, but only time will tell and God knows everyone's hearts. Our job is to preach the message. God's job is to save. And their job is to respond. We all have a job, right? Hebrews 3, 7 to 8 says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, oh, what a gift if you hear it. Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness. And by the way, it's all in caps because God wants you to know. No, I'm just kidding. That's the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament. You know how you send people text messages with caps? It's like, I got the message. I can read in lowercase and uppercase. But what they're saying is, this is important. But that's the Old Testament. That's in the NESB. They caps the Old Testament, which helps you see it. But God is saying that today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts any longer. Do not leave this room without doing business, so to speak, with the Lord and with your heart. He also says this, not only is today the day of salvation and to steward your hunger well, but also is to continue in grace. He says that here, Paul is saying, look, if you've responded somewhat positively, great, continue in it. Continue in grace. That's also what we should be preaching to each other. That, hey, do not harden your hearts, believe now. But also, if you have believed, please continue in grace. That we know that perseverance is the key to prove, and to, to prove to, not to the Lord or to anyone in particular, But it is the test. Perseverance is the test to see if there is true saving faith in a person. The fact that they continue shows, even through the mess and the trials and the sin and the fight, it shows that they're his. Have you ever seen, I I mean, sometimes that's just an act of worship. Um, When you're going through a hard season, you're going through a trial and all of a sudden, you know, I, whether it's a church service or you're t- spending time with God and you just remember, wow, I, man, that was a really rough three months and you got me through it. I'll tell you, that is one of the most profound assurances you can find in your life. You don't need, you don't need a pastor to say, oh yeah, you're saved. I know you're saved because I really don't know you. And I would be careful in telling people, oh, yeah, just pray this prayer and bada bing, you're done. For an Italian missionary. 
That's what Italian missionaries say. Bada bing, you're done. But, <laughs> I'm kidding. But the, you don't want to falsely assure somebody. And what you should say is rather continue in grace if you believe this message. Continue in grace. That is probably the, most, the, the, the best thing you can tell somebody. Don't assure them, oh, you're saved, sweet, we'll see you in heaven. In fact, our, uh, not the limo driver, we didn't, weren't that fancy, the, the Uber driver, a little lower class there. But we, uh, we were driving, and it was kind of funny, but part of our team took another Uber, and it was an Ethiopian guy who was preaching to them. And then we had a Dominican guy preaching to us. The whole car ride, the whole 45-minute car ride from downtown D.C. to the airport in Virginia. And it was just, it was kind of funny. We all got to the airport. It was like, my guy was preaching. Yeah, my guy was preaching. What what happened to D.C.? This is amazing. So, like, we're bringing 180 missionaries, you know, about a month. And so, uh, just so encouraged that they're preaching the gospel in in the Uber. This is great. So, one of the things he did say, or I think it was Mike said it, he said, hey, I'll see you in heaven. And he's like, I, yeah, I, I hope so. He kind of casted a little bit of doubt. He's like, we know, we know we're going to heaven. I can't assure you if you're going to heaven. I don't know. He kind of got like some of his gospel message was a, a little bit off. He started holding on to the rosary and he's saying, I'll tell you what, if you touch this cross, there's power in it. And I was, Kevin was in, in the middle and the windows were down, 18 hours of discipleship, we're exhausted. Kevin's like bobbing his head on my, on my shoulder. I'm like, like he's preaching. <laughs> he's standing now. He doesn't want to fall asleep in church. He learned his lesson. But the, and then Mike's over on the other side, and he's, he's preaching. And, and I, I'm kind of, I'll be honest, I was dozing off to you. I was just a little tired. And you can't hear through the masks and all the, you know, the windows are down and we're tired. And, he's, and he says, you know, you can touch this cross and, and, and it's like, it's power. You can find power in it. And I kind of understood what he's saying, but I was like, I am too tired. <laughs> it's like, Lord, I am too tired right now. <laughs> but I have to say something. <laughs> I was like, sir, um, <laughs> This isn't a superstitious faith. You cannot hold on to something material and think somehow there's power in that. There is power in the cross, but there's power in the resurrection. And so anyways, I think he just started preaching again and I don't really understand half the things you were saying, but at least we set the record straight that you can't just touch crosses and somehow find life in it. But we are not to falsely assure people. And I think that as we go out on the streets, even in D.C. or wherever we evangelize in this city, we've got to be careful that we don't just tell people, oh, you're going to heaven. But the biblical response is continue in grace. And it's not according to their own, their, their own works or their, it's not according to their own strength, but God's. In fact, Let me just rattle off a few scriptures that talk about the need to persevere in the faith. John 15, one through six says, I am the true vine and my father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes 
so that it might bear more fruit. Another sign of salvation is saying that when you go through hard times, he is pruning you, which shows you that you're connected, showing you that God is intimately involved in your life with the shears, even though it hurts, nonetheless, you're being pruned, which shows you're his. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am in the vine and you are in the branches and he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. And if any, anyone, now by the way, I just wanna pause, that apart from me, you can do nothing. That is not some pragmatic way saying that, oh, if you just stay connected to Jesus, you'll do great things. That is not at all what he's saying. What he's saying is that if you stay connected to Jesus, you show that you're his. It's a matter of salvation, not necessarily the mission of God, so to speak. It has to do with if you're connected to him, you can do all the things that God has called you to do. There's a part of that. But if you're not connected, it just shows you're not having a bad couple of days without doing a quiet time. It has to do with, oh no, you're not connected to him and you don't really care that you're not connected to him. It shows that you're not a part of him. It shows you're not his. And so if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as as a branch and dries up and gathers them and casts them into fire and they're burned. Now, someone that has a bad week and doesn't do a quiet time is not gonna be dried up, burned, and thrown into the fire. But those who are not connected to him in salvation will. That's what that passage means. John 8, 31, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue, underline, continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Key word is continue. Colossians 1, 21 to 23, and although you are formerly alienated and hostile in the mind, engaged in evil deeds, this is our former life, and yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshy body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now listen to what Louis Burkhoff said. He's a systematic theologian. He says this, perseverance may be defined as that continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in a believer by which the work of the divine grace has begun in the heart, is continued and brought to completion. It is because God never forsakes his work that believers continue to stand to the very end. The key word is continue, but it is not your strength or your continuing. It is a partnership with the power of God giving you the power to continue. It is a partnership. It is, and and I'll read another couple of quotes that will more clarify that, but Hebrews 3.14 says this, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. The Bible will confuse unbelievers. If you don't know God and you're not reading the Bible with the Holy Spirit, you will be utterly confused to everything I'm saying. Because I literally go back and forth and back and forth. You're like, what is it? And if you're like, what is it? Ask the Holy Spirit first to save you (laughs) so that he can now reside in you 
And then the second prayer is ask him to illuminate your mind so you understand the scriptures. 1 John 2.19 says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been with us, or of us, they would have remained, keyword underlined, they would have remained with us if they were really of us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. What is the of us? Meaning that they're spiritually brothers and sisters. They're not of this family because they left for good. Now, this is not talking about when people leave the church for a season and they're frustrated or they're offended. That's not, but if they remain offended, they're not of us. And I'm not talking about of this church, I'm talking about not of God. Because what happens is those, who, it's clear in the text that those, only those who continue in the faith and in the walk with God, allowing him to speak into our lives, it shows that we're his. Does that make sense? Okay, so not all professions of faith are genuine. In Matthew 13, 18 to 23, this is something that's in my mind every week. It helps me to understand. It helps me to get a bigger picture of the kingdom of God and how it works within this kingdom of the world. Matthew 13, 18 to 23 says this. Here then the parable of the sower. This is Jesus explaining. When when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. We've all seen that, right? This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. I'm sorry. Yes, it's on the side of the road. So the one on, on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And yet he has no firm root in himself, but only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So sometimes we're like, we preach the gospel, we invite someone to church, we're walking with them. And then all of a sudden we're like, oh no, the first time they're tested. And we're kind of, almost sitting on the edge of our seats, wondering what are they going to do? And that's okay. I think we should be there. We should not manipulate them or pamper them or try to get them out of the, of the trial because they need that trial to see if they're his. God is going to test every person in this room multiple times until you die. <laughs> but every one is meant to be both a a place of strengthening your faith, improving your faith. There's two things that always result from a trial, but he immediately falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of the wealth choke the word. So sometimes we're on the edge of our seats wondering, oh no, they got the job promotion. It's not just they lost something in their life, persecution, trials, but also they gained something. And we're like, oh no, what are they gonna do with the accolades? What are they gonna do when everything goes well in their life? Hmm. Sometimes that's the more tricky one where I'm not only at the edge of my seat, but I'm biting my nails watching this film saying, what are they gonna do with the wealth? So, 
And the one whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is our hope for everyone, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some hundredfold, some 60, some 30. Now that's encouraging too. Now all of us should want a hundredfold. But even if we have just, you know, we're looking like a barren tree and pop goes the grape. It's like, praise the Lord, I'm in. (laughs) That guy's in. Can't eat much of a lunch on that tree, but he's in. He's good. (laughs) Praise the Lord. You know people like that? I mean, we all do. I mean, sometimes that's us in certain seasons. We're like, we just made it in. Now that is not, you, you don't produce, trees don't, you can't produce that on your, on your, you can't do that. You can't make it on your own strength. It's got to be the Lord. And that is comforting. So continue in the grace of God. Continue in it, not falling back to license. Because that's often what Paul's opponents were saying. But, well, Paul, you're talking about grace so much. Well, if I just... Sin, well, grace, you said grace is going to abound all the more. And I love that feeling when I'm in sin and grace covers me. I love the wave to wash off all the sand. Should I just roll around in sand all day so I can have the feeling of the wave crashing and washing it all away? He says, no. It's rhetorical. No, that's not how grace works. Because one day you'll be rolling in the sand and you'll die without the wave crashing over you. And we don't want to take advantage of the grace of God. It says that multiple places in the scriptures. Sinclair Ferguson says this, there is no doctrine of the security of the believer as though God's keeping us took place irrespective or irrespective of the lives we live. In other words, Well, let's just finish. Indeed, there is no such thing in the New Testament as a believer whose perseverance is so guaranteed that he can afford to ignore the warning notes, which are sounded, often sounded so frequently. In other words, you can't just assume, hey, you know what? I get it, once saved, always saved. That is true. But you can't just get saved and be like, hey, you know what? I'm good. And ignore the warning. The warning is more relevant to the one who is saved. It's like, oh boy, he's warning me right now. What do I do with that? What am I supposed to do right now? The unsaved is like, they ignore the alarm. You know, if you ignore the alarm too long on your iPhone, it goes silent. That will happen to many of us. If you ignore the alarm for too long, you can't hear it anymore. And the believer's like, I just heard the first three seconds of it. I'm in. I heard it loud and clear. I'm repenting. I'm continuing. I'm moving forward. And so you cannot just take advantage of the profound, amazing doctrine of the preservation of the saints, which is incredible, but to not be taken advantage of as if we could just do anything with our life. John Piper says the assurance of the believer is not that God will save him even if he stops believing, but that God will keep him believing. God will sustain you in faith. 
He will make your hope firm and stable to the end. He will cause you to persevere. God will cause you, if you are truly his, he will cause you to persevere. Hebrews 10, 38 and 39, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Did you hear that? God has no pleasure in you if you shrink back. In a day and age where we're constantly wanting to hear, oh, God thinks the world of you is so sentimental. He just, oh, he loves you. I mean, Joel Osteen's got a box about this big and you could buy it at the store and you just press the inspirational messages all day long. It's meant for your desk at work. The boss just gives you a hard time, tells you to get moving and give me that whatever paper. I don't like him. Press the button. God has a wonderful plan for your life. You are the, you you mean the world to me. You know, it's just, (laughs) he just keeps going. That's not helpful. That's not helpful. When our hearts are hardened, we have to hear God's message in that warning that he doesn't have any pleasure in those who shrink back. But we are not those of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. If you are saved, if you're his, he pulls you in and he gives you that great assurance. I was, uh, what is his name? Spurgeon, the great preacher. He says this over and over and over and over and over again. If it wasn't for the preservation of the saints, if it wasn't for that doctrine, I would have no comfort. But at the, there's a balance to that, right? When we do hear those warnings, when we do running away from God, those warnings will draw us back. And when we draw back in his strength, it then gives us comfort that we're his. All right, Galatians 5, 4, if you have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. So we, we've got to continue in grace. And so part of the, what the apostles were telling him, they were saying, hey, continue in grace. In other words, continue in the grace that is empowering. It empowers you to do all that God's called you to do. We need his grace. It's not that all of a sudden we, we are works people and we are trying to work out our salvation. We realize, oh, our works don't save us. We come to Christ in grace. And then all of a sudden we're saying, hey, in order to keep me here, I got to switch back, switch the gear back to works. You'll exhaust yourself. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary. It was a direct correlation to you're putting so much burden on yourself. You're trying to please God by your works. But isn't it interesting at the same time your works do please God, but it's only done when it's done in grace, when it's done in his power and in his strength and in his mercy. Romans 11.6 says, "If, if if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. All right, part two, message rejected. Let's read on. Verse 44, the next day or the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and, the, uh, and, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of the, God, of the of eternal life. Behold, we are turning now to the Gentiles. 
For so the Lord has commanded us, if I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's the Old Testament, which they should have known that this message was for the Gentiles too. See, the Jews were jealous. That's what this passage means. They were jealous because they were saying, hey, look, this message is for us. Who are these guys? If we reject, certainly I hope they don't accept because that, that in itself made them jealous. And, and Paul actually talked about that in Romans, that this jealousy was hope. It was, it was even part of God's plan to bring the Gentiles, saying, hey, if they're getting it, I want in on that. But they became so hardened. But God still said, I still have a plan for you. You could see the grace of God even in that that his arm is not too short to save anyone, no matter how hard-hearted they are. That's why we should always continue to pray for our friends and family, no matter how hard they are. Because God's arm is not too short to save. Whether you have a husband who's not saved, or a child who's not saved, or a friend who's not saved, or a coworker, or your boss, or whoever that might be, continue to believe. Because we don't know. We don't know God's sovereign plan. We don't have the book of life. Uh, the name, we, don't, we don't have that book to scroll through the last name of alphabetical order and to see he's there. Sweet, I don't need to pray. Awesome. It remains a mystery, so we pray. And then on the back end, we say, oh, he's there. He was always there. And we'll get to that in a moment. It's a very important point. The Jews were jealous of the Gentiles, and they did not want them to be saved. So they began to blaspheme, blaspheme God. They began to contradict Paul in the moment. See, Jonah, excuse me, Jonah 4, 1 through 3 says, it is, but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, and he said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? God, did I not tell you that if I did go, they would be saved? I didn't really want to go. I don't want them to be saved. Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life. <laughs> For death is better to me than life. What a miserable old man. But sometimes that is us. And you know why? You want to know why or how I should say how this comes about in our life? Let's just say you get saved at 18. You live this life for 20 years. You watch your brother, you watch your sister, you watch people close to you, and they even made more of a mess of their life than you did. And all of a sudden, they get saved, and God blesses their life so richly, maybe even to the extent more than you. And you say, how can that happen? And you forget that the grace of God saved you. And that's what happened. Jonah, who was God's prophet, he was in ministry. He should, hello, he should want people to be saved. <laughs> this is like his job description. And he decides to be grumbling and complaining and going the exact opposite direction because he could not bear one of the most evil people on the planet at that time, the, people, the Ninevites, he could not bear the fact that this loving God would show mercy to them as much as he showed mercy to Israel. The Jews contradicted Paul, blasphemed, blasphemed, 
But yet, God loved the Jews so much that he said, everywhere you go, preach to them first. Matthew 15, 24, and he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Matthew 10, five and six, these 12 sent out instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not any, enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of Israel. Do you see God's heart? The purpose is to see his heart in this, that he loves the Jewish people. He has not neglected them no matter how hard-hearted they are. Luke 24, 47, repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Acts three twenty six for for you, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning away, turning every one of you from your wicked ways. You're speaking to the Jews. And then Romans 1, 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. The scriptures were clear that this message was for both. But God said, because I love my people, preach the gospel to them first. And this is the first time that he said, look, because they've rejected, you're going to the Gentiles full time now. But I'm still keeping my eyes on the Jews. That's the God we serve. That you'll go with the hungry on campus. You'll go with the hungry. You've got to go with the hungry. But do not neglect the hard-hearted, at least, if anything, in prayer. And if God gives you an opportunity to share with somebody. The scriptures are clear. John 3, 18, those who do reject do have consequences. John 3, 18, he who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. John 5, 40, you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. John 8, 24, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he you will die in your sins. There's only one way of salvation. Paul and Barnabas now turn to the Gentiles, but I want to just show you that this isn't, this isn't just because God's irritated with the people and now he says, okay, just go and move on to somebody else that might be willing to listen. You, all of us in this room, unless you're Jewish, he literally had you in mind way back in Isaiah 700 years ago. Isaiah 49, 6 says, he says, it is, too, is it too small of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 42, 1 and then 6, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. What an amazing, big vision God we serve. It's incredible. The message is accepted by the Gentiles and I love this. They says they, in verse 28, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. They were so excited. They're like, are you kidding? I'm a part of God's plan. I believe this word. They began to glorify. They began to get this sense of joy. And then they immediately went on mission because their lives were radically transformed. 
The one little caveat here in this passage that I think would be really helpful for us, again, to be reminded of, is in verse 48, it does say, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, God does appoint people to eternal life. There is this sense of God's sovereignty in your salvation, but there's also this sense of human responsibility. And do not ask me to explain that because I don't know how to. And I'm not saying that because I'm a rookie. The greatest theologians on the planet don't know how to do that. J.I. Packer says this, the particular antinomy which concerns us here, or paradox, that concerns us here is the apparent opposition between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, or putting it more biblically between what God, is, what God does as a king and what he does as a judge. Uh, scripture teaches that as a king, he orders and controls all things, human actions among them, in accordance with his own eternal purpose. Scripture also teaches that as judge, he holds every man responsible for the choices he makes and the courses of action he pursues. Thus, hearers of the gospel are responsible for their reaction. If they reject the good news, they are guilty of unbelief. In other words, if they reject, it's our fault. If we accept, it's his. In other words, it, we can't save ourselves and the doctrine of, of the sovereignty of God is one that is so profound and it causes us to worship, not run away. Realizing there's no way possible looking at my life and my past that somehow I just woke up one day and chose to follow him. It was him. John 6, 65, no one can come to me, speaking Jesus, he's speaking this, unless it has been granted from him, uh, from the Father. In other words, you can't even go to Jesus unless the Father's beginning to work into your life and presents you to him. Colossians 3, 12 says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. I'm just gonna rattle a few off, but I want you to see over and over and over and over and over how this word chosen and the elect are full in the Bible. I mean, it's passage after passage after passage after passage. And just one little side note that people have often have come to me and we've have many conversations saying, well, God doesn't, doesn't teach predestination or God doesn't teach that God appoints people and no one, you know, not he doesn't choose anyone then what do you do with Colossians 3.12? So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. 2 Timothy 2.10, for this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. Titus 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of truth, which is according to godliness. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. That didn't convince anyone. 1 Peter 1.1, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout dot, 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 who are chosen. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Matthew 24.22, unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days would be cut short. Luke 18.7, now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? 
Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is he talking about? Christians. We shouldn't look at that and say, God, people look at that and say, oh, God is hateful. I look at that and say, wow, God is so loving that he would choose me and I am his chosen one. It's identity. It's our identity. It's who we are. Revelation 13.8 says, and who will dwell on the earth in all, I'm sorry, and in all who will dwell on the earth will worship in everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in, in the book of, the, of life of the Lamb. And also, in other words, that appointed word or just the word elect means to inscribe or to enroll. It's like God's writing. He, he, your name will be written in the book of life if you're his. It's there. It'll say, Etzin Vargas. How does that make you feel? Let that sink in. A.J. Borelli. What a wonderful thing. The book of life. Your name is in that book. And I'll tell you what, that is the only opinion that will matter that day. Is what he thinks about you. Psalm 69, 28, may they be blotted out of the book of life and they may not be recorded with the righteous. Revelation 3, 5, who and he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Philippians 4, 3, Paul talks about Christians, fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Revelation 12, 12, uh, 20, verse 12 and 15, and I saw the dead the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in these books according to their deeds. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was to be thrown in the lake of fire. What a crazy day that will be to literally assume that your name is there and you'll find that it's not. Do you remember like those times when you're trying out or uh, for sports or you're just getting roll call in grade school and they're going through the list? Sometimes your name's not there and it's an, an accident. As they're going through the list and sometimes you're going through the T's and then all of a sudden, you know, it's Thomas and, uh, you know, other T names and you're going through and <laughs> you're just like, It just got skipped. Can you imagine that? You're like, well, but but, it's a a done deal. But what I do know is your name's not written there and then erased. If your name's written there, it's a done deal. It's a done deal. And God puts it there. Certainly, you don't just fly up to heaven and write it in his book and come back down to earth. It's the sovereignty of God. What did you have to do with your first birth? Did you just decide as you're sitting on the couch in heaven, okay, now it's time? Your blob of cells telling God, oh, it's time to be born today to, in this city, in that hospital, to these parents, and to that family? No. God decides that. What did you have then to do with your spiritual birth? Did you just decide when you're 
deep into sin, all of a sudden saying, I think I want to become a Christian. I think I want to be involved in church. I think I want to go on mission trips. I think I want to have a fulfilling life. No, it was God. It was God that came into your life and said, today is the day of salvation for you. And he put an evangelist in your life to share the gospel with you. Because Romans 10, without that, you can't be saved. What a wonderful, amazing truth. Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And you might be wondering this morning, is my name there? Do I know for sure that if somehow God were to give you this massive You know those phone books? Can you imagine how long that would take? It's way bigger than that. I mean, it just, this room wouldn't even be able to contain the amount of names. If that just fell on your lap and you had all the time in the world and you were just flowing through these pages, oh, where's my name? Where's my name? Where's my name? Would you find it there? Do you have the assurance to not even, for God to even throw the book at you to find even the name because you know that you know that you know that you're his? That is the gift of assurance. It wasn't, this doctrine of the sovereignty of God is not easy. In fact, Jonathan Edwards said this was a terrifying doctrine. It was terrifying to know that this God is in total control and that he saves whom he wants to save. It puts us in a sense of, we are so helpless. And he says this from my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty in choosing whom he would to eternal life and rejecting him whom he pleased, leaving them eternally to perish and everlastingly being tormented in hell. He used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. But I have often since that first, as often since that first conviction had quite another kind of sense of God's sovereignty than I had then. I have often since not only a conviction, but a delightful conviction. The doctrine has very often appealing, exceeding pleasant, bright, and sweet. It appeals bright and sweet to him. He often used that language. Oh, it feels so sweet. It feels so lovely. That's how he's talking as he looks at the scriptures and realizes that absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. But my first conviction was not so. Do you know, I just want to say that it's okay to struggle with this. It is hard to struggle to understand that God does appoint people to salvation. And it's easy for the human mind to say, but what is the opposite of that? but to understand that it's in the Bible. That you can still struggle with it, but also land that it's still in the scriptures. And then know that the greats before us have said, this is a struggle, but I found that God's word is lovely and true and pure and right. Another pastor says this, God's sovereign election, we're almost done. God's sovereign election and man's exercise of responsibility in choosing Jesus Christ seem opposite and irreconcilable. And from our limited perspective, they are opposite and irreconcilable. That is why so many earnest, well-meaning Christians throughout the history of the church have floundered trying to reconcile them. 
since the problem cannot be resolved by our finite minds. We are not to figure this out. The result is always to compromise one truth in favor of the other or to weaken both by trying to take a position somewhere between them. We should let the antinomy or the paradox remain. Leave it. Believing both truths will completely leaving the harmonizing of them to God, not even to a theologian. When you look toward heaven, you begin to see the sign that reads, this is Spurgeon, Whoever will, whosoever will may come and after you enter heaven, you look back at the same sign, it's at the other side of it, and it will read on the other side, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Do you know what this doctrine is really for? It's for the believer. It's for those who already are saved to look back and say, you know what, that is right. There's no possible way I could have caused my new birth. But for those who are not saved, come. Because you have a responsibility to accept this message. Philip Ryken said, election is best understood in hindsight for it is only after coming to Christ that one can know for sure whether one has been chosen in Christ. Those who make a decision for Christ find that God made a decision for them in eternity past. It is like the words of the anonymous 19th century hymn, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him. Seeking me, It was not that I found a O Savior true. No, I was found by thee. And that is what causes you to worship. You want to know how to worship? You don't need to find the latest Bethel song. You need to find truths of the scriptures that will cause you to put you on your knees and realize, wow, he has chosen me. He loves me. He's given me the grace to respond that it was not according to my will, but to his. Spurgeon says, somebody said to me, you can't preach that doctrine. Stop. You can't preach it to everybody because they may not be the elect. You might offend people. And of course, Spurgeon in classic fashion said, well, if you'll go around and pull their shirt up, so that I can find, so I can see if they have an E stamped on their back, referring to election or elect, I'll preach only to them. But see, I don't know who they are, and so we'll go to, so we will go to the ends of the earth because this secret is the decree known only after faith, not before. So I can, with no hesitation, cry out to all to come to Christ. <laughs> Woo, that's good. So what are you supposed to do? Preach both. But when you're on the streets, come, come, come. And when they do, 20 years from now, that disciple that you made, you'll look back together and say, oh, but it was him. It was him. What a beautiful, amazing doctrine. And then last but not least, verse 50. 
But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But when they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples, listen, were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The persecution always does two things. It produces joy in us. But then oftentimes, as we might see, maybe even in the coming days, it will move us out of that city to go to another one so they, they too can hear the gospel. And that's all the disciples did. They were just faithful, simply faithful. But Paul understood in 2 Timothy, this was 2 Timothy 3.11, persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch. This is the story literally he told. And at Iconium and Lystra, which we'll discover in chapter 14, what persecutions I had endured. And out of them all, the Lord rescued me. He always does. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty five. 25, he also describes this scenario. Three times I was beaten with rods. Often I was stoned, which we'll find out a little bit, literally in the next chapter in Lystra. Three times I was shipwrecked day and night. I spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, which we just saw. You get across one of the most dangerous river to get to Antioch. Dangerous, dangerous from robbers as they went through the mountains dangers from the countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, and dangers amongst the false brethren, the beloved Jews. Paul shook off the dust of their feet. We will do this in D.C. Now, we're not looking to do that. We're not just going there, and the first thing we do after we get off the airplane is dusting off the seat from our uh, sand from our sandals and we're like what are you doing i'm just just came from the beach no <laughs> you can't go into dc already judging them you go in with this sense god will save people he has appointed them to salvation we're certainly not bringing 180 people there to see people perish we're going them to see them saved And then when you get into a scenario where you're being pushed out of that district or you're being pushed out of that area because they are hard-hearted, you have to understand Jesus said this and they were simply obeying him. And he said, but whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, Why did he have to do that? I'm cool with the sandals, but saying this, I'm not sure. But even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for this city. Do you know why? Because the street leading to the White House is Black Lives Matter directly across and they've spray-painted pretty much every church on the way to the White House. They know the truth, and they've chosen to reject it. So you can ultimately say it is better for Sodom that had no church in the streets of Sodom, but they do in D.C. And if they reject, they are worse than Sodom. 
and it would be more tolerable for Sodom than for D.C. But that's what Jesus says, and that's what we must do. But we go into D.C. wanting to bring the message of salvation, and we might leave with numbers of salvation, but we will equally come away with some less dirt on our sandals, saying that this city now is judged by the Lord. That's hard, but it's true. All right. Have the band come up. I want us to pray for DC since we just got back from there yesterday for two days and we're heading there in about five weeks, I believe, right? So anybody else that wants to come, sign up and go. We'll figure out a way for you to get there somehow. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Jessica's like, <laughs> it's like the awkward smile that <laughs> it's like I do want people to go, but you know. No, we need you. We need more troops on the ground for sure. But I love that as they left that scene, they were joyful. And I believe that God is going to produce even that same joy in the hearts of our people as we distribute across the streets of the District of Columbia. But Jesus did say, Matthew 12, verse 30, says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who, who does not gather with me scatters. In other words, there's no neutral ground. You can't be there. Uh, if you feel like you're there and just give me more time, you may not have time. You're not guarantee life more than a few seconds from now. And it's today is the day of salvation. And I believe it would behoove you to give your life to him. I think it would make the most sense now to give your life fully to him. Just as George Whitfield continually said, come, please, come. Eternity is a long time a long time in fact it doesn't even make sense to say it's a long time because it's forever in fact our finite minds can't even comprehend a long time forever we can't comprehend that but it is what it is and may your name be put in the book of life long before with the hand of God written in ink that will not erase and if your name is there And today is the day of your salvation. Believe. I'm not going to ask you to pray a prayer because you need to pray. (laughs) Uh, You need to talk to God. Uh, I'm not going to give you the words, but you need to just say, I need you. Uh, I I want salvation. I do not want to be left behind. I do not want to stand before you and find out my name's not there. I do not want to waste my life anymore. And I love the fact that that thief on the cross, the one who had sense, looked at Jesus while the other one was ragging him, saying, mocking the Son of God, the very one who made him, was mocking him. And the other one had some sense and said, look, this guy didn't do anything wrong. 
I did. And Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise. And man just said, please remember me. It wasn't as if all of a sudden he wrote the name at that time. That man's name was written in the book of life when he got saved, when he got, uh, even before he got born again, before he was even born the first time. It was there, unbeknownst to him. And when he was on the cross, he didn't realize that it was there. It was there. But the Holy Spirit got a hold of that man's life. And I love that because he didn't do any works. He couldn't. He didn't have an arms, legs to do anything with. He just simply said, hey, that man is perfect and I'm not. That's a great salvation prayer. You are perfect. You're the God of the universe. You're perfect. You're holy. You don't have any blemish. You never have. You never will. But I do. I have lots of them. I am a mess. I cannot save myself if my life counted on it for the last day. And Jesus said, look, you're, that's all it takes. In fact, I'm on the cross here for you and the other guy. It's just, you can't remain on the fence. You're either the guy who got his eyes gouged out by crows only to go into a hell or you're the guy who says, I, I'm a sinner and he's perfect and he's providing salvation literally before my eyes. There is no middle ground. There's only two options. You're either for him or against him. And so Father, we pray